You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 once again. Ephesians chapter 1. This will be our third sermon now, I think, on what really in the Greek language is one long sentence, right? I told you that uh, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 is, uh, in the original language, just one long, continuous sentence of truth and glory being given to Christ. And I told you that a lot of people teach it as one sermon, but um, I felt like in looking at it that it needed to be divided up so that we could really glean and mine through some of the deep truths that are contained here. Um, today's section is is one that uh, resonates with me because I always always gravitate, I think, towards the passages that um, teach the eternal security of the believer, right? Um, in the midst of, you know, week in, week out, fighting sin and experiencing failure, uh, to be able to come back to God's Word regularly and see passages like we see today in verses 11 through 14 that remind us of our security in Christ, uh, that our salvation is based not on our performance, uh, but on the performance of Christ. I always find great encouragement uh, from that. We talked uh, last week particularly uh, about the redemption that we enjoy in Christ, um, that, that God very intentionally designed and executed a plan that leads to the freedom of those who believe in Christ and the unification of the entire creation under the rule of Christ. And so we saw last week that our redemption is really meant to move history towards this point where we're all unified under Christ. And so I want to what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is read through the entire sentence once again, just so that we can see the context of the verses that we're going to be looking at specifically today. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We saw last week that we we live in light of this freedom, this redemption that's been given to us. We live in light of the plan that we see where history is moving towards this uniting of all things under the rule of Christ. And so we seek to, to bring people even now under that rule through the gospel presentations that we give. And, and what we see today in verses 11 through 14 entails the security that we have in that redemption. The fact that we've been redeemed, we've been saved, and it's guaranteed for all time, right? It's guaranteed for all time. So let's look at our summary sentence for today. It says, as believers, we have been guaranteed a secure future, meaning that our faith will endure to the end, which should encourage us to prepare for the end by living for his glory now. As believers, we have been guaranteed a secure future, meaning that our faith will endure to the end, which should encourage us to prepare for the end by living for his glory now. For our kids, eternal security means that once we are saved, God keeps us saved forever. This is a passage that reminds us of the doctrine of eternal security, that if we are ever saved, we are destined to remain saved until we are fully saved. Let me say that to you again. If we are ever saved, if we are ever saved, we are destined to remain saved until we are fully saved, right? And so we see the the picture there that that we're saved at a point in time in history where God transfers us from darkness to light, 
Uh, we talk about that in the terms of being justified, uh, that we're declared righteous based on the righteousness of Christ, not our own good works. And then we know from that point in history, God begins to sanctify us and begins to move us into this conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not until the day that Jesus comes back where we'll experience what we call glorification, where we're entered into the presence of Christ for all eternity uh, with glorified bodies, right? So many of us have loved ones that have gone on before us and they're with Christ and they'll be with Christ for eternity. But even in this state right now, they're not in their eternal state, right? Sometimes that gets convoluted at funerals where I think pastors and and those that speak sometimes uh, don't realize that they're mixing some theology there. The idea there is that they are not in their eternal state, right? People that have died before us are separated from their bodies. Uh, at funeral services, we, we have the bodies typically present there with us in the service, and we put it into the ground. And, and the, the truth there is that there's hope of resurrection, right? Not just hope of reuniting with our loved ones in soul format, but to reunite with them in bodily format, right? And so we, we, we long for and we wait for this day of glorification where we're reunited with loved ones. We're given glorified bodies that are completely set free from sin. No more uh, to be subjected to death, right? We long for those days. And we're given a picture of that secured future, right? We, we get a glimpse of this. We're given a picture of this, that this is what our future looks like. This is what our future looks like. Um, I love in following sports, I love the draft process for, for various teams, whether it's baseball, basketball, football. I just love reading about draft picks, those that are coming out of college. I love the projections of what these individuals are supposed to become. And, and people would have you to believe that it's a science and that it can really be predicted, but it's really chance. I mean, you just don't know. Every year in the NFL, draft picks are made and millions of dollars are invested in individuals with the hopes that they will become something great, right? And many times they don't. And many times guys are passed over who eventually become great, right? We saw that last week with the Super Bowl where Tom Brady, who was an afterthought in the draft uh, the year that he came out of college, just went to his 10th Super Bowl, just won his seventh Super Bowl. I think the most that anybody else has ever been to is four or five, right? The Washington Redskins just recently had to release their quarterback who was drafted in 2019. Millions given to this guy right? And he doesn't pan out. He doesn't become what they anticipate or hope that he'll be, right? For us as Christians, we are given our projection and it's a secured projection. This is what we will become, right? There is no chance. This is what we are destined to be. To the praise of his glory, Paul talks about here in Ephesians, we are destined to be saved and to remain saved, sealed by the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. If we're ever saved, we are destined to remain saved until we are fully saved. Now, there are plenty of denominations and and individuals who uh, don't hold to this view, right? The critique to this doctrine of eternal security is what's oftentimes presented as, what do you do with the individual who gets saved and remains completely unchanged? right? How can they be secure in their salvation if they remain unchanged? The problem with the critique of this doctrine is that I believe what's being presented is an imaginary individual that does not exist, right? People don't get saved and remain unchanged. That's the picture that we see in the Bible. Particularly, you read through the book of Hebrews, right? The believer gets saved and is changed and endures to the end, perseveres to the end, right? That process looks different for all of us, right? At times, sanctification is fast. At times, sanctification is slower, right? As we yield to the Spirit, as we yield to the flesh, our sanctification looks different. But the fact remains that as believers, we are new creations in Christ. We are in Him, and we are destined to be changed. We are destined to bring glory and honor to Him in our salvation, right? So those that would, those that would fear this doctrine— ultimately really agree with us who hold to this doctrine, right? Because at the end of the day, what we're saying is that people can't get saved and be saved in the end and remain unchanged, right? We're in agreement about that, right? Salvation leads to change in our life, right? And so what we see in scripture is that for the believer, his eternal future is secure 
because God ordains it that way, and God works everything according to the purpose and the counsel of his will to ensure that we are changed. And there's plenty of those that, that will make professions of faith and will fall away, right? They'll, they'll look like a Christian, they'll talk like a Christian, and at times they'll even act like a Christian, and they'll fall away. We see that in the parable of the sower and the seed, right? Those who show an expression of faith or some type of initial response to want to follow Jesus, and then it tails off due to the things of this world, the passions of the flesh, whatever it may be, they fall away and really show themselves to have never been saved, right? They don't lose their salvation. They just indicate that they never really were saved. They never really possessed uh, the Holy Spirit within their life. So we're going to see some of that today as we work through the text. Um, and so I want to jump right into our notes this morning with number one, uh, our responsibility to envision the security of our future. I think God would have us to, to pause for a moment while we sit here together and gather around his word and really think about what the future looks like, to think about what we are destined to be, what we are destined to become and to envision that. It says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. The first piece to us envisioning this security of the future is to be reminded of the fact that our future starts and ends with Christ. It's because we are in him that we have this inheritance. And, and, and we're seeing this prepositional phrase, in him, come up constantly in this long Greek sentence. I think Paul's intentional to keep mentioning it because he doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact, right? We don't have an inheritance because of all the good works that we do. We don't have an inheritance because of all the change that happens in our life after we get saved. We don't have an inheritance because we didn't bring as much baggage of sin to the table when we got saved as others, right? We are, we are destined to obtain an inheritance because we are in him, in Christ, the one that we studied last week, who is responsible for our redemption, who has set us free from sin and guilt. Without Christ, our future ends in tragedy. But because of Christ, because we're in him, it ends in glory. Our confidence is not in our accomplishments, but in God's character. It's in him that we enjoy this security. But number two, our future involves really two things. And it's hard to know which one Paul is referencing here because both are true. It says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. The way that the Greek can be translated is it can be translated to mean one of two things. One, that we have obtained the status of being an inheritance— or it can be interpreted as meaning we have obtained the inheritance for us to possess ourselves, right? And we don't really have to split hairs here as far as figuring out which one does Paul mean because both are true. Both are communicated in other parts of Scripture. That one, we have obtained this status where we are viewed now as God's inheritance, his special possession, his people. And then we've also been given an inheritance, been given a treasured possession to take hold of, when Jesus returns. And so I want us to see that just real quick. Um, first off, looking at that first perspective that we've obtained the status of being an inheritance. So being an inheritance and receiving an inheritance are both taught throughout scripture. Uh, the first, I now enjoy the same status as Old Testament Israel as God's possession. Look at these Old Testament passages and then the New Testament passages that include us in what God's word has to say about his people. Exodus chapter 19 Verse 5 it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. All right, so we know in the Old Testament, God reaches down, chooses Abraham, chooses the descendants of Abraham, and then calls out Israel and says, You are my people, you are my possession. You are my inheritance. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. The Lord rescued them out of Egypt to be his inheritance. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 16. Talking about, former, uh, talking about other nations, other gods, it says, not like these other nations, these other gods, is he who is the portion of Jacob, 
for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Micah chapter 7, verse 8. Sorry, Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Right? These, are, these are Old Testament passages that talk about Old Testament Israel being God's special people, his inheritance, his possession, where uh, we understand these people to be the recipients of all his promises, right? And, and, and we're not really included in that as Gentiles until we get a greater picture of God's plan in the New Testament, and we see that we are included in this, right? First Peter chapter 2, Peter uses some of the same language that we've seen in these Old Testament passages. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. And it's absolutely true to see in this passage that we have obtained the status of being God's inheritance, that we're part of his people group now. So we look into Old Testament, and we see all these promises to Israel, and, and, and there's debate as to how those promises are getting fulfilled in the New Testament and, and how they're fulfilled in Christ and, and whatnot. What I can tell you is that whatever is happening to God's people in the Old Testament and the promises that are made to them, I'm included in that. And I fully believe that the New Testament pictures me as a Gentile being grafted into God's people. I'm now part of this great possession, this great inheritance that God has claimed for himself. But the other part of this is true. Not only have I obtained the status of being an inheritance for God, I've also been granted an inheritance, an inheritance that's being kept and watched over for me. You back up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Real similar to Paul's introduction to Ephesians chapter 1, right? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And both of these things are true for us. Right? If you're a believer here this morning, you have obtained the status of being an inheritance. God has loved you and has chosen you to be a part of his people now. And you're the recipient of all his promises. And part of that promise is that you have been given an inheritance as well, one that is being preserved for you, that is waiting for you. Right? And so we envision that future. My future is not to be a bust as a draft pick. Right? I'm not going to be one that, that doesn't reach my potential. Right? I'm going to make it to the end, and I'm going to achieve this, this inheritance that's being given to me, not because of my performance, but because I'm in him, in Christ. It's in him we've obtained an inheritance. My future involves me being that inheritance and receiving an inheritance. And number three, my future is both predestined and guaranteed. It's predestined to happen. It's guaranteed to happen. My future is being guarded by the power of God. Again, not my performance, but his power. Back in 1 Peter 1, that inheritance, unperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. How's it being kept for me? How's it being preserved for me? Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And it's God's power who guards our faith, who keeps us saved, who is ready to be revealed in the last time, ready to give us that inheritance, and he ensures that it'll happen. He ensures that that should be such an encouragement to us because we know ourselves, we know our sin, we know our passions, we know that we're prone to falter, right? And sometimes if we're not careful, we doubt whether we will make it right? Because we start to rely upon our own performance-based mindset. And what this passage tells us is that in him, we have this inheritance. In him, we are an inheritance. And God's not going to sacrifice it. God's not going to lose it. He's going to preserve it and safeguard it until the end. And I want us to, 
to envision this, and, and part of our application today is going to be to, to simply just meditate on this truth, right? Because the more we meditate on it, the more we think about it, the more aware we are of this eternal plan, the more anxious we are to be a part of it, right? Um, I don't know how many of you have ever sat down and you, you turned on a movie, knew nothing about it. Maybe your wife or your husband said, hey, let's watch this movie, and you're just like, all right, sounds dumb. Sounds like it's going to be a, a, a real uh, poor movie choice. And then you start to get into it and you're like, I love this movie. This movie's great, right? Like we have those experiences. But then we also have the experience where like we're watching every trailer for this movie that we're anticipating coming, right? Like we can't wait for it. We, 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 we kind of have an idea of the story. We, we long to see pictures and images of this movie that's coming out for the summertime. And it builds this anticipation to where we walk into the theater and we're like, man, I have been longing for this and looking forward to this, Right? Both end up being a great movie, maybe. One you just kind of walked into and stumbled into, and you're like, oh, what a great movie. The other one, you're like, man, what a fulfillment for all this longing and anticipation. And I believe that um, what we see in passages like Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, are meant to be like these trailers for this future that we're looking forward to. I mean, it's meant to whet our appetite. It's meant to create a longing and an anticipation. And if we'll pause long enough to watch the trailer, if we'll pause long enough to reflect on what this means, right? You start to dissect a trailer when you're watching for a movie. Like, oh, what is that? Oh, that's a new character. What's that going to do? Oh, wow. Like you start to really just hone in on it. And, and it creates wonder and excitement. Man, I want us to envision our future in the same way, like we're watching a trailer. This is what we have to look forward to. And we don't fully know what that looks like. We don't fully understand what it means to have this inheritance. I just know that it's there, and I know it's guarded, and I know it's coming, right? Envision the security of your future. It's being guarded for you. It's being protected for you, and it will be given to you. The security of our future leads us into seeing the end. Uh, need to embrace the security of our present. Our, our future is secure, which means our present status is secure as well. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our, our, our present is secure in that we are told, number one, that our circumstances are the outworking of God's purpose and will. Every circumstance that we encounter, I mean, it's tied to God's purpose and his will. He's predestined these things to happen. He's carrying these things out. It's in alignment with his will and his purposes. Last week, I shared with you like 20 ways that God operates, right? The ways that he chooses, the ways that he wills, the ways that he restores and rescues, right? These are, these are things that, that uh, we understand. Uh, this is how God operates, and what we see once again in this chapter, in this verse this week, is that he operates in such a way where everything that comes into our life is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All my life's events are being guided by his sovereign plan. Predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Not only does he ordain this great end that we're looking forward to, this great end that we long for, this, this culmination of our salvation into glory, he ordains the means to the end as well. According to his purpose, according to his will, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not only can we embrace this security of our present that our circumstances are the outworking of his will, we can also see the security of our present involved in how our salvation even comes about, right? We have this initial expression of faith, and then we're also told that that initial expression of faith is sealed for all eternity. He talks about the gospel coming to individuals and the individual's responses to the gospel. It says, according to the purpose, according to his will, we were the first to hope in Christ, and we did so to the praise of his glory. And then in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you too believed in him, right? Um, 
my response to the truth of salvation that God graciously presents to me is both to believe it, to believe this truth of the gospel, and to hope in it. We see kind of a balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility here. I told you there's tension in regards to both of those things, right? Like we're talking about all this stuff that God's predestined and it's according to his will and his purposes. And then we see man stepping in and having to respond to it, right? He says, we hoped in him. We believed in this truth. And we see that careful balance that this is how salvation works and it's how salvation has always worked, right? There's a pronoun change here that a lot of commentators highlight where it talks first about the we who were the first to hope in Christ and then you also heard and believed in him. The idea being that obviously the gospel came first to the Jewish nation, right? They were the ones who anticipated the Messiah. They were the ones who were longing for uh, salvation. Some believed, some didn't, right? And it's because of the rejection of the Jews that the gospel then goes forth to the Gentiles. We saw a couple of weeks ago where the Gentiles were a part of that discussion. Hey, you've rejected Jews, you've rejected. We're now going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are like, yes. Yes, bring the gospel to us. We're ready for it. We want to hear it. We want to respond to it. This is how salvation works, both for the Jew and the Gentile. That truth is presented, the truth of the gospel, and then we are called to respond to that, to believe and to hope in it. My response to the truth is to believe and hope in what has been presented to me. My salvation also results in me being sealed Right? He, do, he goes a step further and says, you have that initial expression of faith, the hope, the belief in what has been presented to you, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the one who can save us. And then it says we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when that happens. Man, isn't that such an encouragement to know that the sealing happens immediately, not after a time period for us to see if you really meant what you said, Right? God doesn't say, okay, respond to the gospel and you say, yes, I believe, yes, I hope in you. And then God doesn't step back and say, we'll see. We'll see if you really mean that. And then we'll talk about the sealing part, right? No, God knows when we believe. God knows when we hope. And he stamps that seal upon us in the form of the Holy Spirit. It says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This concept of seal in Bible times really related to ownership, authenticity, and security. The seal was used in a variety of ways. One, it was used as a piece of branding. Uh, They would brand uh, their cattle, their animals, to show ownership that this belongs to me. Uh, Even in when uh, culture was mired in slavery, the branding was used uh, in that way. Uh, It was also used as a sign of authority. Um, when, when a king or a ruler wanted to show that this comes from me, he would use his stamp or his seal to indicate that it was backed by his authority. Uh, we see that at times in the Old Testament with um, guys like Daniel, right, who uh, came under condemnation for breaking the law, and the laws were sealed with that seal of authority. We see it in the story of Esther as well, right? That stamp or that seal communicated authority. It communicated authenticity as well, that this comes from the, the desk of the king, basically. And, and we see that same um, defining purpose in what it means for us as salvation, that the seal of the Holy Spirit assures us of God's favor. It shows that we belong to him. It shows that our salvation has been rendered certain that we're his inheritance, that we're his possession, right? That we're now owned by him and we're destined to become all that he wants us to be. And so the Bible here tells us that having that Holy Spirit, that promised Holy Spirit, being sealed with the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Having the Spirit indicates that we belong to him. And you could go a step further in saying that having the Holy Spirit leads to the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is an indicator that we're saved, right? We said that nobody gets saved and remains completely unchanged, right? That's a hypothetical, imaginary person. You don't, you don't make a profession of faith and then stay in your sin and somehow get eternal security, right? People that are truly saved are changed. Why? Because God comes and dwells within them, right? In the form of the Holy Spirit, and, and we start to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in such a way that the fruits of the Spirit manifest themselves, 
And it's obvious to everybody around us that we've become salt and light as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Look what Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? If you're saved, then you're going to remain saved. If the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Look what he goes on to say. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That concept of adoption comes up here again, right? We've received the spirit, we're adopted as sons. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right? The Holy Spirit is an indicator both to us and to others that we've been saved. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll get to this chapter down the road, but let's go ahead and look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you with, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's Paul going to eventually teach us in Ephesians is that if the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, there are things that we used to do, things that used to define us, things that used to describe us that are now way different. We used to be a thief and now we work hard with our own hands, right? We used to tear others down with our words and now we build them up and encourage them. We used to hang on to anger and now we're tenderhearted and kind and forgiving towards others. The Holy Spirit's inside of us. It brings about change in our life. He's the, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. He shows that salvation has occurred. And this is certainly true in the New Testament as well as it was in the Old, even though there's a difference in how the Holy Spirit works, right? We know that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a new and different way than what they were experiencing in the Old Testament. We won't get into it here. I did a whole sermon series on it way back in the day when we were talking about... Um, the, the giftings of the Spirit, and even in the, the covenant theology piece. Um, but if you go to John chapter 7, if you just want to write this down, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus really defines for us what the difference was going to look like. That when the Holy Spirit was going to come upon believers after he leaves, after Jesus departs and the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit comes to convict and to, to remind us of the truths of Jesus, that one of the major differences is that our life would now pour over into others, right? You think about the Old Testament, they were, they were largely inwardly focused, the people of Israel. They weren't really concerned about their life spilling over into others. But man, Pentecost shows up, right? And the Holy Spirit shows up and, and the life of the believer is totally different, totally different. And you see the Holy Spirit working itself out uh, in the life of the believer in such a way that people are being impacted greatly. And so we as believers possess this Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works in us and it demonstrates to others and to ourselves that we belong to him. It's really a testimony of the Holy Spirit working in our life if we can even believe what I told you earlier, that every circumstance in our life is being worked out and according to God's will. And for us to be okay with that and for us to accept that, for us to be content and satisfied with that, that's an outworking of the Holy Spirit in our life as well. 
My eternal security is tied to the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. He's the guarantee of my inheritance. He keeps me until the day of salvation. He's like an engagement ring. He's like earnest money, right? Those of you that have gone through the house, the house either purchasing part or selling part, you know there's that expectation that earnest money would be given. What does it mean? It means that I'm really all in on this, that I really want to do this. I really want to purchase this. This is a promise of more to come, right? Hey, I'm gonna show you that I want this house by giving you a percentage of what I'm gonna eventually owe you at the closing, right? It's a, it's a down payment, the engagement ring anticipates more to come. It anticipates that, that full-on marriage ceremony. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us. He's a preview of more to come, right? He's a preview of what is going to ultimately take place in our life when that inheritance is fully possessed. The Spirit marks us as God's own and serves as the guarantee of God's purposes in our lives. My faith is being empowered to endure to the end. In Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I told you Colossians parallels a lot with Paul's thought process in Ephesians. He's praying that believers would be strengthened, not with their own power, but with God's power, according to his glorious might for endurance, right? Because God's qualified them to share in this inheritance. And so we see that endurance piece that we are going to endure to the end because God wills for that to happen. Um, we saw it in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 9, that God is the one guarding our inheritance, and it's even in the midst of trials and difficulties that we endure if we're truly saved. So going back to 1 Peter 1, verse 5, God's power guards us through faith for salvation. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? It's God guarding us and empowering us to endure to the very end. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. He will finish the work and bring us to glory. Philippians 1.6 gives us that promise, right? He starts the work in us. He finishes the work. All right, so let's go back to Ephesians and, and wrap up these verses. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, those first Jews might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What, what's the implication of these doctrines? What's the implication of this internal security? Number one, my salvation should lead to the praise of his glory as my faith is worked out. And if it doesn't, the validity of my faith should be questioned. And we were saved for a purpose. We were saved to the praise of his glory, which means my salvation should lead to the praise of his glory as my faith is being worked out. And if it doesn't, the validity of my faith should be questioned, right? If, if I'm not growing in such a way where I'm giving him praise and glory for the things that are being done in my life, and if it's not leading to others giving praise and glory, right, that, that believe, unbelievers should see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven, man, if that's not happening in our life, man, we have every reason to question if faith is truly there because the purpose, according to Ephesians 1, is to the praise of his glory, which means, number two, we're instruments of his glory, not mere observers of his sovereignty, right? We've talked about this. We err if we think that because God is sovereign and in control and chosen and destined and all these things, if we just think that we're bystanders and we just sit and watch everything unfold, we've missed the point of all of this sentence, right? That we are called to participate in this outworking of salvation to the praise of his glory, which means number three, 
And this goes back to that critique of this doctrine of eternal security. Eternal security should be viewed as a ticket versus a license. A ticket that solicits preparation versus a license that allows for participation. So, so here's what eternal security is and what it isn't, right? Eternal security is like a guaranteed ticket that you're going to be something. You're going to be able to enjoy something. You're going to be able to go to something. And it solicits preparation for that, right? So just recently, I, I booked our men's retreat to Snowbird. I'd called them a week ago, and they said, oh, we've got like 100 spots. Um, I called, and, or I, I went to book it, and there, it wasn't letting me book it. Right, And so I called them, and I was like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we only have half the spots that you need to book your group. And I was like, well, that's just not going to work. Like, we're not going to bring half of us. We need to bring everybody, right? So if I need to call Rob or Spencer, like whoever I need to talk to, like I need, I need to get more people in on this retreat, right? Well, let me see what we can do, right? Call me back. Hey, we found some other spots. Like, we're going to be able to get your whole group there. And I was like, that's right. Um, so... All of us are getting to go, right? We got 21 people, I think, uh, that, are, that are signed up to go. And we all have a ticket, right? We're guaranteed to be able to go. We're, we're in. We're not on the waiting list. We're in. And now there's preparation that happens to get ready for that, right? As we get closer, we'll start to evaluate the needs that we have for the trip. We'll pack for the trip. We'll, we'll work out schedules. We'll ask off from work if we need to. We'll make arrangements with our spouses uh, for kids to be taken care of, all that, Right? A license simply allows you to participate in something, right? If I have a driver's license, it gives me the freedom to, to drive around um, and to exercise that license. Eternal security is not a license for us to then live however we want to live because we're eternally, eternally secure, right? That's, that's an abuse of this doctrine. This doctrine is teaching us that we have a ticket, a guaranteed inheritance, and we prepare accordingly for it, Right? We anticipate this, this end goal, right? We anticipate that we're going somewhere and that there's this end thing that we get to enjoy and so we prepare leading up to that versus exercising our freedom with a license to do whatever we want to, right? That, that, that's where people sometimes get fearful about this doctrine and when rightly understood, it's never to be seen as a license to live however we want to live because our salvation, if rightly understood, is meant to be the praise of his glory. Therefore, eternal security is meant to encourage the struggling believer, not empower the sinning believer. Eternal security is meant to encourage the struggling believer, right? It's meant to encourage those that are here this morning who have experienced some failures this week, who have not lived up to what they believe God has called them to be this past week, right? You didn't treat others the way that, that you wish to be treated at all times. You, at times, let your anger show forth versus your tenderhearted care right? You, you interacted with your spouse in a way that you wish you hadn't, or your children the way that you wish you hadn't, or your boss or your coworker. Eternal security is meant for us to gather and to see a passage like this and to feel at rest knowing, man, thank God my, my salvation is not based on what I did last week. It's based on what Christ did 2,000 years ago. What it's not meant to do is for us to gather this morning and for somebody to see eternal security and to say, I can keep doing what I did last week. It's okay. It's fine because Jesus' sin or Jesus' blood pays for my sin, right? That's an abuse of this doctrine. It's meant to encourage the struggling believer not to empower the sinning believer, right? If we were ever saved, we're destined to remain saved until we are fully saved in the end. I want to close by, by helping you process through what some of us have been talking about in regards to um, what's come out about Ravi Zacharias, right? Here's a guy who, famous author, famous preacher uh, that many of us have read and listened to and have been influenced and impacted by, right? And this report that's come out that, that seemingly presents truth about some of the behavior that was veiled previously, man, it leaves us sometimes asking and wondering, is there hope for any of us if, if somebody like that has such hidden sin and such hidden rebellion? Like, like what does it mean for us, right? And so I want to kind of talk through this real quick in closing because I think it's relevant to our discussion on, on eternal security because what eternal security does not give us is a license to live however we want to, right? 
doesn't afford us that opportunity, right? Um, as I was processing through this this weekend, and for those of you that aren't aware, um, just, just a lot of veiled, hidden sin. And you can look this up and read uh, different reports that are out there. Gospel Coalition has put some stuff out. Um, but I think it's important for us to process through this biblically, right? Number one, in our best efforts, we remain inadequate judges about the character and fruit of others. We just, we just are. We're inadequate, Right, so the Bible tells us to test teachers, to test preachers, to test individuals, to know them by their fruit. And sometimes the fruit comes out later. Sometimes we see fruit uh, at, at a later time, right? What we can be thankful of this morning is that the judge sees all. Like the ultimate judge sees everything and he brings everything to light, right? He brings everything to light. I know I've been engaged um, in conversation with, with individuals about, okay, like what does this mean for his salvation? Was he saved? Was he not saved? Did he lose his salvation, right? Well, obviously, we believe that, that one can't lose their salvation, right? I would caution you, number two, to be careful that we don't make the gate too wide or too narrow, right? It goes back to what we talked about in uh, the Sermon on the Mount teaching, right? Um, obviously, we know that Jesus's blood can pay for all of our sin, as disturbing as it may be, right? As disturbing as it may be. But we also know from Scripture that there is a calling placed upon our life when the Holy Spirit indwells us that, that leads us away from behavior too, right? And, and thankfully, we don't have to judge anybody's salvation. We, we don't have to make the call on any of that. Just now we're talking this morning, man, we can, we can rejoice in God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his justice regardless of what we find out later about people and their salvation, Right? We can trust in his goodness and his ability to bring justice in the right ways, whether that's justice on the cross or whether that's justice through, through his wrath, right? We have to be careful, though, that we don't make the gate too wide or too narrow. Number three, if Robbie Zacharias was a genuine believer, we should see him more as an exception versus a norm with us expecting better things for ourselves versus fearing or assuming similar things. I love the passage in Hebrews 6 where it talks about one of those warning passages, right? Warns us not to be an individual who tastes and sees and hears and feels the goodness of the gospel and then falls away from it, falls into behavior that, that is uncoming of a Christian, right? And the author of Hebrews kind of catches himself and turns the attention back to these believers that he's writing to. And he says, but I expect better things from you. I anticipate better things from you. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, verse nine, it says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I strongly believe that what the gospel communicates is that Jesus's blood saves me from all of my worst sins. But I also believe it communicates that his blood keeps me from some of my worst sins too. Man, when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit indwells us, he begins to change us and begins to sanctify us and move us to being conformed to the image of Christ, to the praise of his glory, right? And so we can, we can examine the gospel. We can believe the gospel. We can see the truth of the gospel and know that the gospel saves us and it changes us. And I pray that you'll see that this morning. And I pray that even as additional authors and, and pastors and teachers uh, let us down and, and, and fall off pedestals that we put them on, and, and they're destined to do so, right? I mean, we're sinners saved by grace. But that we would see We'd see the truth of the gospel that we're seeing today and, and know and feel the assurance that with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, our, our future is secure, not in our performance, but in Christ. The identity truths that I want you to remember this morning as we close. Number one, every Christian has a secured inheritance. Every Christian has been sealed by the Spirit. And every Christian has been saved for his praise and glory. Again, these are identity truths that are spoken about us. If you're a believer this morning, you have a secure inheritance. You've been sealed by the Spirit, 
And you've been saved for a purpose, for his praise and glory. You've been given a ticket, not a license, a ticket, and we prepare accordingly. The application for this week, I encourage you to spend some time meditating on the truth of our security in Christ and let it encourage you where you're struggling, but also let it motivate you to right living where needed as well. Don't err on the side of sitting here today and, and feeling secure in your sin because you believe you're secure in Christ, right? You come here this morning and you're struggling, right? You find, you find assurance. You find assurance that your salvation rests with Christ. But if we come here in pride, thinking that my sin is taken care of, therefore it doesn't need my attention, and we've abused the doctrine, it's not a license to live the way we want to live. It's not a license to give in to our flesh, right? It's a reminder to us that we are secure for a purpose, a purpose to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you've given us a trailer. You've given us a picture. You've given us a down payment. You've given us the earnest money. You've given us the anticipation of what's to come. God, we thank you for this inheritance. We thank you for making us your inheritance. God, we thank you that the Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. God, we look forward to it and we long for it. But Father, I pray that it would impact our life today. God, that you would remind us that we were saved to the praise of your glory and that your plan for our salvation is for the Holy Spirit to to work out our faith in such a way where we are giving you increasing praise and others are seeing that lifestyle and being drawn to you as well. God, I pray that you would assure us where we need assurance today, that our failures this week haven't impacted our salvation. We're still sealed by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. But God, as we reflect on this past week, God, help us not to be satisfied with sin in our life. God, help us to be motivated to confess and to repent and to experience change that's promised to us. Thank you for guarding our salvation with your power. Thank you for empowering us even now to live in light of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.